This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the advicey little sibling of working the podcast, where we offer creative advice on the creative process, question mark. Anyway, I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. How are you, Isaac? I'm a little beat, not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> it's been a lot of meetings, a lot. Of, I mean, it's all good stuff. It's, you know, the book's been doing well, better than I think I thought it was going to. But, oh, you that's know, great. Which is great. So it's like there's a lot of press commitments. There's a lot of stuff like that. I'm also serving sure. on a committee at the new school. And so just I'm just in meetings all the time. And so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bushed. I'm not going to lie. Uh, how about you? I was going to say, I guess we sort of already know how you've been doing because we just had you on for a main episode to talk yeah. about where you got the book. It was, you really grilled me. You really just, you you pulled like a Isaac Chotner style. But on this day, <laughs> you said, you know, just no, rake God. me over the coals. No, it was it was really fun to be a My guest on this fear. show. Your greatest fear is being Chotnered? I think anyone in media yeah. who knows who he is, yeah. that's like their greatest fear to be interviewed by him. Even if you don't have anything problematic in your past, it's just like, I don't want anyone yeah. to perceive me on that level. As someone who writes research-based nonfiction, my greatest fear is that Naomi Wolf moment where she was being interviewed by the BBC and learned oh my that the God. fundamental premise of her book was factually incorrect. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened. Well, that's a really important thing to investigate like that i i don't know what i would do <laughs> our producer I, just made like the whoo face like, yeah really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh dear god yeah. um yeah i don't know what i would do i don't know what i would do how are you doing I'm okay. Yeah, I'm here recording with you. I'm so excited because today we are talking about a piece of listener mail, which listener I... Listener email. <laughs> um, we received an email from Anna Louise Sussman that I thought was a great fit for the show. Um, let me read you her question. How do I make creative work more, well, creative? I'm a journalist working on my first book, which is a narrative nonfiction slash argument book about the barriers real and perceived that people face in having children or growing their families. I really wish I could make the writing more lyrical and emotional and visual and poetic. Instead, it's very leaden, and there are days I think the entire manuscript is written in back-to-back -back journalistic cliches. I've tried things like reading loads of writing slash craft books, reading a lot of poetry, walking around my neighborhood, and challenging myself describe the things I'm seeing in metaphor or simile, but sometimes I fear that my brain just doesn't really work in this way. Is this correct or is it possible to reset one's relationship to language so it's more loose and creative and playful? All right, now let's unpack this letter one step at a time. We've talked a little bit about this as friends, Isaac, you and I, but now for the podcast, is this problem making creative work more creative or less dry, I guess, something that you've experienced? Oh, yeah. It's definitely something that I've experienced, particularly, you know, like once I was going to graduate school to take writing creative nonfiction more seriously, which was not, mm -hmm. you know, my background, like I had a blog, I had written some magazine <laughs> articles about theater. I mean, she puts it right, a relationship to language that has a lot more variety. One of the big challenges of nonfiction, which this listener is working on and you and I both work in, is um, 
you you can't change the facts to make the sentence prettier. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like you do also have this primary duty that has to do with the information, the content, the, you know, all this other stuff. And um, sometimes language can be subordinate to that. At the same time, you want it to be fun and exciting to read. And that, mm-hmm. that's a really difficult thing to balance and learn how to do. And I feel like if you're a nonfiction writer, you're going to constantly be learning and relearning new ways of doing it. What about you? Yeah, I've definitely struggled with this. I think especially as I was coming out of college, just because I think like when you're in college, a more kind of dry and academic tone is what's expected of the stuff that you turn in, especially if you are like I majored in art history. So the essays that I was writing were not fiction. They weren't really supposed to be. I guess, fun (laughs) in the same way that we're thinking about right now. Right now, as a writer, I tend to worry about tone more when I'm writing longer pieces. I think it's easier to be kind of quote-unquote bloggy in shorter pieces where voice is kind of more expected or more often used. But the more that you actually have to talk about and say, it's like what you were saying, Isaac, like you can't really do that much with the facts to make them like pop or more exciting and it can be hard not to sound flat um in that context where it's like you you want to be taken seriously but it's hard to do that without sounding serious absolutely we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more working overtime after this What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, so Anna also mentions that she tried different methods of getting around this problem of trying to make creative writing more creative. Uh, What methods have you tried? What has worked and what hasn't worked for you? Okay, I have one that I did. I've actually described it, I think, once previously on the show, like Mm -hmm. 18 months ago. It's (laughs) time intensive and it's really bonkers, but I am going to describe what what I did. Because I think this was 
really, really helpful. So what you do is you take some passages, usually pair a paragraph long of writing that you think is particularly effective from writers that you admire. Um, and so you have like a little collection of these paragraphs. And what you want to do is you're going to work your way through those paragraphs and diagram the sentences of the paragraph or turn them into Mad Libs, right? So you, I do this all by hand. I actually think that's important. So first, the first thing you do, transcribe the paragraph by hand, then redo it again, but just make it all, what are the parts of speech at each point in that sentence? Right. So maybe it's like adverb, <laughs> verb, wow, you know, noun, yeah. adjective, phrase, you know, this and then article or whatever. And then you can obviously you don't want to do that for every and and the or whatever. But, you know, you, you start to figure that out and then you write your own sentences that have those parts of speech in them in that mm. order. That will really give you some new ways to relate to how language is used to express ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to do it with a bunch of different writers who have different styles. And then you can really, you really just kind of train yourself to learn their style, much the same way that, you know, like I, some of my students are jazz majors and they'll transcribe a John Coltrane solo and then play the John Coltrane solo, right? To learn how he soloed. It's kind of like doing that or, or Picasso at 13 painting in the style of other painters. That kind of learning by imitation is a thing that often gets discouraged in writing, but I think it's really, really helpful for expanding your tool mm -hmm. chest. What about you? I feel like I haven't really been as resourceful as you or Anna about solving this problem, but I guess my method I would describe sort of the same way that you would complete a drawing or a painting where it's like I what I usually try to do is just get all the words out first and have a first draft of it and it doesn't really matter if it's dry because then what I do after that is you go back in and then try to fix where you see like opportunities to make it a little more descriptive or a little more exciting in some way so it's kind of having the bones there and then yeah. figuring out where you can put on the decorations basically that's actually a really good point one of my questions for Anna would be like well which draft are you on if you're on your first draft yeah, like fair. don't beat yourself up about your first draft they call it a shitty first draft for a reason like sometimes <laughs> you just gotta get it out there and mm -hmm. then you can look at it for example like she might be looking at a first draft right and being like god mm -hmm. this sucks it's like yeah of course it's sucks. It's a first draft. So <laughs> now, now you've got to punch it up and punching it up might mean that you actually rewrite the whole thing. Who knows? But part of what you're doing in an initial draft, I found, I mean, you're working on a book right now. It's like, what order does this stuff even go in? What is this? Mm -hmm. You know, there's all those larger structural decisions are often really important. And then you figure out the style or whatever it is. Yeah. I was also really struck by the last line of Anna's email where she describes trying to solve the too dry problem as, quote unquote, resetting one's relationship to language, which I think can also sort of apply when you're jumping between projects or mediums. And I'm curious, what's the most dramatic shift in writing style that you've ever had to make? It is 100% going from drafting the book or working on the book to writing a script for working. Uh, you know, when, you have, <laughs> when we have one of these recording sessions in the afternoon or whatever, and you've really been plugging away you know, trying to beautifully describe, you know, Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire or something, then all of a sudden you have to switch to like, so Karen, this week you talked to, you know, like it's just, <laughs> you're, you're moving from a written tradition to an oral tradition. You're moving from something that should sound really refined to something mm -hmm. that should sound off the cuff. It's just totally different, but you, you also work in a lot of different forms. So what about for you? 
I feel like I've experienced it the most when I'm writing scripts, whether it's like a, a TV pilot or a screenplay, because the muscles that you use are so different, partially in terms of like self-consciousness, because I think sometimes it's hard to write dialogue between characters without feeling dumb about yourself, where it's like, I'm just making like Barbie's kiss or whatever. Um, but at the same time... <laughs> like like how you play Mass Effect? I just want to make yeah, them kiss. I just want them yeah. to kiss. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, I really need them to kiss, but like, how do I get there? And it's like both that and also figuring out what is and isn't necessary to put kind of as description in a script, because a lot of that stuff kind of will get figured out by people who aren't you later on in the process. Um, whereas I feel like with a book or an essay, you wouldn't worry too much about that kind of thing. You just put everything in because it's all important context. We've got one more break, and then we'll be back with the rest of Working Overtime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, listeners. Is there a creative problem or roadblock that we can help you with? If so, send us an email at working at slate.com or better yet, call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. I also want to address Anna's postscript, which reads as follows. It's especially frustrating because when I'm emailing with friends or texting, I think I'm more funny and playful. It's when I have to write for work that any and all personality goes out the window. I guess the question that I'd pull from this for the podcast is how do you not just prevent your writing from being too leaden, but also preserve or showcase your personality within? That is such a good question. And I think that's something that we all just struggle with and we find our mm -hmm. own way through it. But what it makes me wonder is maybe Anna just hasn't found this project's voice yet. You know, voice to me is about what the work in question really needs. There's no such thing as quote unquote beautiful writing. You can have a book that has not a lot of metaphors and similes in it, but still feels beautiful because it's actually, I like to think of it as elegant writing. It's like the appropriate writing style for that material and what the project needs. And that's going to come from you. It's not going to be an impersonation. Mm -hmm. So it could be that like, she just hasn't found that yet. And obviously she's drafted at least some of this. And so maybe it's time to create some weird rules to just like break you out of your normal habits, like change the POV so that it's in second person and then, you know, uh, and rewrite it and then rewrite it back into third or like, hey, if you're good at emails to a friend, write an email to a friend in which you describe the stuff that's in the chapter mm -hmm. You know, and then use that as your first draft and then rewrite from there, you know, or there's a playwright, Jenny Schwartz, if I remember correctly, whose technique is every time she does a rewrite, she actually just like throws the entire old draft away and rewrites <gasps> from scratch and oh just like whatever sticks in the memory is what was worth keeping. I mean, she really, really, you know, don't mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you could rewrite a chapter from memory or you could read what you've got out loud and hear where it's clunky and then circle those parts and go back. Or even what if you outlined the chapter and then tried to improvise it out loud as a story into a Mm -hmm. tape recorder? If you get out of your normal habits, maybe some cool voice will emerge from that. Yeah, I I also agree with the reading things out loud thing. It gets hard, especially if you're writing at length. But even if it's just for a paragraph or something, it can sometimes help to hear it Every time I turned in a revision of the method, I read it out loud. You are insane. Yeah, it was crazy. I will really never crazy. do that for my book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, not not once we were in the copy editing. Oh, well, now the first pass of the major copy edit, I read all the copy edited, you know, all those changes yeah, out loud. Yeah. But like That's fair. the three or four times that I sent it to my editor, I, I read the whole thing out loud. That's wild, especially knowing that how long your drafts of the book used to be. Lord. <laughs> anyway, uh, also on the topic of voice, I once had an editor who forbid all of us from using the first person in any writing. They're just like, you can't use I in anything that you write. And I'm curious if you've ever instituted rules like that in your writing, which it sounds sort of like you have based on our conversation thus far or otherwise had those kinds of rules imposed on you. Yeah. So I got to a point when I got really sick of talking about myself. Like as mm-hmm. a writer, my my project, my MFA thesis in graduate school was a memoir project. And I was writing a lot of kind of first person, you know, here's this funny story from my past and I'm going to use it to make insightful points about blah, blah, blah essays. Yeah. And there's no knock against those. I just got sick of it because I felt it was a crutch for me mm-hmm. and I needed to kick that crutch away. And so around when Dan and I started working on the world only spins forward, I forbade myself from using the first person basically. And Mm -hmm. I now only use it when I absolutely need to like either because I'm in it or because like, that's the only way to make that transition work between Mm -hmm. paragraph and paragraph or idea or idea or whatever. Um, But for the most part, I really try to not be in it because I feel like for me, I'm not talking about writers in general. This is just for me. The writing is more interesting if I don't rely on the first person. Now, that got Mm -hmm. me into trouble sometimes. Like, you know, I did this piece for Slate about the science fiction writer John M. Ford and trying to track down what happened to him and his estate. And I wound up being a character in that story Mm -hmm. because I helped solve this problem with his estate over the course of reporting it. And the first time I tried to write that story, I tried to somehow write that story and not be in it. But, Mm -hmm. like, I really was a character in that story. So that was a totally ridiculous thing to try to do. So um, (laughs) anyway, I just think if you're over-reliant on a particular mode, it's nice to just like force yourself out of that mode. Constraints create creativity, you know? And on that note, I want to recommend a specific thing to our listeners and to Anna who wrote in, which is uh, Matt Bell, who's a wonderful novelist, has a newsletter of writing exercises. And many of those are geared towards revision. And he actually just put out a book about revision, about revising your novel to make it better called Refuse to Be Done. His newsletter is great. It's free and you can subscribe to it at mattbell.substack.com. It's just That's really, you'll you'll get a lot of good stuff in there about, about how to make your writing more vivid. That's a very funny title for a newsletter, but on the same token, I, I love to be done with something. I love to not have to look at something anymore. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this Speaking episode. of being done, we don't ever want to look at this episode again. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. But if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things that we could do better or questions you'd like us to address like we did in this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 
304-933-WORK. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know what I'm about to say, which is that if you would like to support what we do here on Working and get more out of your Slate experience, do us all a favor and sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood. You get full access to everything that's behind the paywall on the site, and you will be supporting what we do right here on Working. Sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Big, big thanks to our producers, Cameron Drews and Kevin Bendis. We will be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working. And in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.